Thank you for listening to the Resources for Integrated Care podcast series, Strategies for Improving Care Coordination for Individuals with Intellectual and Developmental Disabilities, or IDD. This podcast is excerpted from a webinar presented live on August 9, 2022. In this podcast, Dr. Emily Lauer, the Director of the Center for Developmental Disabilities Evaluation and Research, or CDDER, at the Eunice Kennedy Shriver Center, discusses health outcomes and the current state of care for people with IDD. I'll talk today about what we know about health challenges for people with intellectual and developmental disabilities, as well as the current state of health care for them, and in particular, uh, clinical-related conditions and challenges that they experience. So we know worldwide that people with these disabilities experience a wide array of different health inequalities and, unfortunately, uh, violations to some of their basic human rights. So if we compare people with intellectual and developmental disabilities people without these disabilities, we know that they're more likely to live with complex health conditions, many of which are chronic. These chronic conditions often are more poorly managed than people without these disabilities and may include less common conditions uh, like epilepsy. They also have more limited access to high-quality health care and health promotion programs that are uniquely targeted to the needs of these individuals. We see that they receive preventive screenings at lower rates, particularly cancer screenings. They're more likely to experience obesity. And many different projects who have conducted community-based evaluations have found undetected vision, hearing, and dental problems. And people with IDD are more likely to have mental health problems, as well as be overly prescribed on psychotropic medications. And we'll talk a little bit more about why that is in a moment. If we consider how people with IDD access care and their experiences, we know that they face a large array of barriers of access. So this includes providers who may not know or be comfortable with supporting their individualized needs, particularly related to things regarding their disability. There are a limited number of specialists who accept Medicaid and Medicare, and people with IDD have a greater need for specialists of different types and arrays, so it may be harder to find them in their communities. And they need to navigate what we know to be a complex system of care. And so if you consider some of the executive function challenges that present in people with intellectual and developmental disabilities, it makes it even harder for them to navigate these systems of care, which can be hard for any person trying to receive services. If we look at the history of inclusion of people with these abilities in managed care, it really varies. Some early programs really struggled to adequately serve this population in part because they tend to need greater number of services and more frequent services. They also need some really skilled case management, and I think early programs may not have had uh, those particular skills. There are, however, pockets of excellence in what we see in the community-based care system, um, including some interdisciplinary clinics that have done a really nice job of training up their clinicians and supporting each other in approaching a person-centered care model for these, these individuals. And we know that there are gaps in quality measurement, and I mention this because newer models like value-based care really 
focus on outcome measures. So where we don't have good relevant measures for this population to ensure their needs are included, particularly some of their more unique needs, they tend to not get emphasized. And so that is a, an additional gap. So when we look at how and why people with IDD experience access health services, we see that they are more likely to use the emergency department in a given year, for example, and also to be hospitalized. When we look at why they're using the services, we see more what we would call suboptimal utilization. So needing to go to the emergency room for conditions that could be treated if recognized early in an ambulatory care clinic or outpatient services, and also some utilization that's preventable. We do see a big, what we would call a behavioral component to why people are visiting the emergency room. And this underscores greater need for community-based mental health care and crisis response for these missions that understand how to work with people with these disabilities, including people with autism. Unfortunately, the emergency department can become the provider of last resort in these situations. As I mentioned, people with IDD are less likely to receive health screenings. We've done some work to try to figure out why that is, and we see fewer referrals for screenings by clinicians. There's been some feedback from clinicians that they might not want to try to put someone through a preventive screening, but of course, if we think on the other side of the options when you detect a condition at a late stage, that often is undesirable experience as well. We're trying to work on education for clinicians and support to have a person-centered approach to considering screening options. We also see some hesitancy with people who are supporting people with IDD, so guardians and family members may be hesitant to put someone up for a recommendation for a screening that may be uncomfortable or a little bit scary for them. We also see people who have special positioning needs, such as women who may not be able to access traditional mammography, experience challenges in getting the screenings they need. And we have seen some programs with some success that do what we call desensitization. We think about a new screening experience and the equipment that's used, the whole experience to walk someone through that ahead of time to allow them to touch the equipment and get more comfortable in the environment and understand what will happen during the course of the screening can really help reduce anxiety during that. The advances in screening also give us an opportunity to create more individualized recommendations. So there are newer screening options. If we think about colorectal screening, for example, we now have more fecal of blood testing options, which is dual sample instead of needing to go through an invasive procedure. Not every one of these new screening options will be appropriate for every patient. There are some greater options, and that might include ultrasounds for breast imaging instead of mammography. So for some patients who may not have been screened at all in the past to use newer options, maybe a good frontline approach to see if further care is needed. We also want to work with beneficiaries and their supporters to understand why the screenings are important, what will happen during the screenings, and how to make screening appointments that suit their needs. So they may need appointments with extra time for certain times of the day or at locations that are more accessible to them. When we think about how to optimally support health for people with intellectual and developmental disabilities, we first want to listen to the beneficiary to understand their own strengths and needs. And if the beneficiary can't tell you that themselves, then ask the people that they choose to support them and are surrounding them. There are some really helpful models that have come out to emphasize some of the key components to making person-centered care accessible for this population. So we can't assume a high degree of health literacy really in any of our patient populations, but we want to make sure people understand the conditions that they're diagnosed with and how to optimally support themselves. There's a model called Communicate Care that came out of Surrey Place 
that has a nice bro- broken down component of how to communicate and interact with patients. So they really emphasize getting to know your patient, including their accommodation needs, creating a safe and comfortable space to support that person, accommodating their needs through things like we talked about with appointment times or physical locations, and to establish a rapport. And if you consider how to communicate here, you want to be really clear in your communication to be listening attentively, to be really responsive to their concerns and engaged with the patient. And if you think about the different components here, these work for many different types of beneficiaries and patients, not just people with intellectual and developmental disabilities. I also want to make a note here about behavior. Behavior in people with intellectual and developmental disabilities is often really misunderstood. It is communication and it should start there. And when we train our medical students, for example, we use a HELP model, which is an acronym that really breaks down how to consider behavior first as communication and very last as either a psychiatric condition or just an undesirable behavior. Often people with intellectual and developmental disabilities may act a little bit differently when they have a medical condition, when they're in pain, when they're experiencing some symptoms in a way that you or I might might vocalize. We also want to consider environment. So is there something stressful happening around the person or something and agonizing? Thinking about lived variants, there's a much greater history of trauma in this population, including abuse and neglect, though sometimes behavior is related to past trauma. And if it's no to all three of these things, it's only then that we pursue the idea that their behavior, especially if undesirable or adverse, might be psychiatric disorder. The opposite of this order is what has happened, unfortunately, historically. So there are teams that are, are doing a better job of really working through this, but it's an important consideration. As we'll talk about in just a moment, too, there are a number of specific risks and conditions that people with IDD are more likely to experience. So we want to be sure to assess their various risks, including the risk of trauma, and to mitigate those throughout their relationship. Promoting advocacy is also really helpful because, as you can see with the barriers that are experienced, advocating for each person's needs is a key part of ensuring that they receive high-quality health care. So in managing chronic conditions, we want to be thinking about how to make that person, that beneficiary, and their supporters as skilled as possible in supporting themselves. And often that means educating that person and the circle of support around them. So if we think about trying to make lifestyle modifications like dietary changes and other things, it's a lot easier if people do this together and they're all on the same page as opposed to one person in a household, for example, trying to make a change while everyone else there around does not. So we want to in- include and engage the circle of support. And people with IDD may need some additional assistance to help make these lifestyle changes like diet and exercise to make sure that they are managing their chronic condition and that they know when to seek help. There's a sign or a symptom that emerges from that condition. There are unfortunately a limited number of chronic condition management programs that really apply to people with IDD. So there's evidence, for example, that some of the individual diabetes management programs, for example, don't always do well extrapolated for this population. So there is a greater need for more patient-centric approaches. We also know that from what we've assessed through claims data that physicians are not as likely to adhere to all of the quality components of clinical management for chronic diseases or people with IDD as they are for other people that they're treating. So the diabetes is also a great example here. You know, the NCQA components of comprehensive diabetes care, for example, they're much less likely to receive all of the different components that make high-quality care. So it's a place for education and for advocacy. As I mentioned, there are some conditions that people with IDD are more likely to have, and these include what we call the fatal five. These are viral obstructions, infections of various kinds, but predominantly urinary tract infections, pneumonia, and cellulitis, aspiration, D 
dehydration and seizures. And there are a whole number of reasons why people with IDD are at higher risk for these conditions, but it includes some of their comorbidities, medications they're taking, particularly psychotropic medications and the side effects, some of the lifestyle factors, and their need for support from other people. We want to make sure in preventing these that we take a couple key steps. So as I mentioned, first, we want to assess risk and to mitigate that risk. We also want to take some preventive approaches, so ensuring hydration, good diet, bowel health, making sure we're not over-prescribing sedating medications um, or those that contribute to constipation, and making sure we're taking infection pre prevention approaches can all help mitigate what we would call the fatal five. It's also really essential to act on early signs and symptoms and to recognize these as we talked about, they may not always look like they would for other people, or they may be have unique ways in which a person with intellectual or developmental disabilities expresses pain or discomfort that we want to recognize and pay attention to. The polypharmacy is a really big deal in this population. People with IDD, especially adults, tend to be on a staggeringly high number of medications at the same time, and we particularly see polypharmacy in psychotropic use. Some of the reasons for these are mistaking behaviors for mental health conditions. So there's overuse of things like antipsychotics in this population. We also see more meds being added the more someone goes to the hospital or the ER trying to treat what's emerging at the time, but very often those meds aren't walked back if they're not needed. And we also understand that sometimes people with varying conditions look like they have other conditions when they show up. And that's where provider education and support is really critical to be able to help them distinguish what's actually going on. And we see also that some of the medications that are free frequently used have side effects that are then managed with additional medications. So you can see where we enter into a cycle of more and more medications as a person gets older. There are multiple downstream effects of that polypharmacy. It does include, unfortunately, increased morbidity and mortality, but it points right back to the fatal five as well. So more constipation, more bowel obstruction, more dehydration and things of that nature. So in, in terms of improving access and quality here, we want to think about hitting a number of different barriers. So we want to ensure a good provider capacity of specialists, not just IDD specialists, but specialists who accept Medicaid and Medicare for all the populations. We can overcome provider reluctance by providing education and support. There are some innovative models looking at things like an ECHO model where there are clinicians who have experience with IDD who can be a source of advice and referral for other clinicians like primary care physicians who may be working out in the community that can aid the ability to treat this population. So really thinking deeply about how we scale up and build confidence in our providers about how to care for this population. We also want to provide guild care management here, really understanding the needs of people with IDD and making sure that they can navigate that complex system. And that may really involve a start-to-finish kind of approach where you're making sure that they're able to successfully not just get that appointment, but get in the door and receive the services there. We also understand that, as we talked about with the diabetes care example, access is not necessarily sufficient to achieve quality. So we want to make sure that our physicians are really supported to apply the evidence-based practices for this population, really be thinking through those steps and ensure that they get all the different components they would think about for other populations. 